content warning. The following episode includes discussion of gun violence. Listener discretion is advised. Recently, I read a great blog post by ex-evangelical author Cindy Wong Brandt. It's called Why I'm Not a Bridge Builder Within Evangelicalism. In it, she discusses why she chose not to be a bridge builder within evangelical Christianity. One of the things she mentions is that when people commit to being bridge builders within the evangelical tradition, they can deviate on a specific issue, but they must be in line with most others, lest they be seen not as voices within the church, but as being heretics outside of it altogether. Definitely read her entire post. It's very, very good. I can resonate with the idea of being a bridge builder in the sense that for a long time, particularly within evangelicalism, I saw that as being my role. I was a person of color who had friends of different races and cultures within the evangelical spaces I was a part of at the time. I thought I could change problematic issues within evangelicalism from the inside. This was also during a time when multiculturalism and cross-cultural ministry were big buzzwords in American evangelicalism, particularly the slice of it that I experienced. But as my own beliefs became more internally consistent, I found myself more and more at odds with what evangelicalism expected of me. So many people talk about how the American Evangelical Church began to compromise for the sake of political power with the 2016 presidential election. But my experiences told me that the church hadn't changed at all. This is who they had always been. Yet, there was no longer enough of me that allowed me to be that insider that spoke truth to power because they weren't interested at all in truth. Because as much as they claimed to be separate from the world and believed in absolute truth, the reality is that neither is the case. As Pontius Pilate said as Jesus Christ was being sentenced to die on the cross, what is truth? But what American evangelicalism has been consistent about is its thirst for power for oppressive extremist ends. So that's why it shouldn't be surprising that they have hitched their wagon to Donald John Trump. This has also meant, and I'm saying this as gracefully as possible, a lack of commitment to democracy and human rights. When you see yourself as saved by the divine, among others who are just like yourself, those that think like you, live like you, it becomes easy to see your beliefs, attitudes, and ideas as divinely inspired. Charges of inconsistency and hypocrisy don't really matter when those who accuse you aren't what you consider to be part of your tribe. They're not saved. They don't know what they're talking about. They're the world. The only views that matter are those who belong to those who are like yourself. And the views who matter most are those like you who have made it to the top. And if your views are divinely inspired, it's not too far to go to feel that those views need to be law and they need to be defended. And leaders are leaders because they lead you into battle. And when peacefully debating the world, or even forcefully debating the world, isn't convincing enough, maybe 
the world can be convinced by facing down the barrel of a gun. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirrer Podcast. the view that aired September 3rd, panelist Megan McCain, also the daughter of the late Senator John McCain, said, quote, the AR-15 is by far the most popular gun in America, by far. I was just in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. If you're talking about taking people's guns from them, there's going to be a lot of violence, end quote. This is a call to violence. We're no longer in a democracy where we talk through our differences, vote on them, and see how it pans out. If things don't go our way, we kill. This is where we are, and that message is coming from the top. I alone can fix it. According to Dr. Saul Levine, a psychiatrist and author writing in Psychology Today, A demagogue refers to a charismatic political leader or aspiring leader whose words and opinions are persuasive to many people, but many others find threatening. Demagogues are generally narcissistic and embrace authoritarianism and can be brazen, belligerent, and bombastic. They tend to lean into messages of bigotry, prejudice, hatred, extreme patriotism, and xenophobia. These messages tend to attract and galvanize their followers reinforcing the idea of the in-group in a perpetual struggle against the out-group, viewed as the enemy, often seen as inferior in some way. Patricia Roberts Miller, rhetoric professor and author of the 2017 book Demagoguery and Democracy, says this about demagoguery, quote, Demagoguery is about saying we are never wrong. They are. If we made a mistake, they are to blame. We are always in touch with what is true and right. There is no such thing as a complicated problem. There are just people trying to complicate things. Even listening to them is a kind of betrayal. All we need to do is what we all know to be the right thing. And it's very, very pleasurable. It tells us we're good and they're bad that we were right all along, and that we don't need to think about things carefully or admit we're uncertain. It provides clarity, end quote. The entire book is very enlightening. I totally recommend it. And if you're interested in hearing a more in-depth discussion of demagoguery, check out episode 35, Escape from Freedom, which is where I go more in-depth on demagoguery and what it means for our country. Now, The reason I'm bringing up demagoguery here is because, yes, I know I say this a lot, but this bears repeating. 81% of white evangelical voters supported Donald Trump in 2016, and a vast majority continued to support him. White evangelicals are his most reliable constituency, and this is not happenstance. Many of the same mechanisms that keep people wedded to evangelical Christianity also keep them tied to Donald Trump. This Donald Trump. I don't know if I'll do the fighting myself or if other people will. Maybe he should have been roughed up because it was absolutely disgusting what he was doing. If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of him, would you? Seriously. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. 
Try not to hurt him. If you do, I'll defend you in court. Don't worry about it. In the good old days, this doesn't happen because they used to treat them very, very rough. And when they protested once, you know, they would not do it again so easily. We've become weak. We've become weak. And you know what? The audience swung back. And I thought it was very, very appropriate. The audience hit back. And that's what we need a little bit more of now. Part of the problem and part of the reason it takes so long is nobody wants to hurt each other anymore, right? I don't know if I would have done well, but I would have been out there fighting, folks. I don't know if I would have done well, but I would have been boom, 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 I'll beat that. Do you plan on paying for the legal fees of this older gentleman in North Carolina who sucker punched the protester? From what I understand, he was sick, sticking a certain finger up in the air. And, 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 and that is a uh, terrible thing to do and in that, front of somebody that, frankly, wants to see America made great again. It's possible you could help him with legal fees if this man needs it. I've actually instructed my people to look into it, yes. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish, the Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick... If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. According to an analysis conducted by Quartz of the Global Terrorism Database, two-thirds of U.S. terror attacks have been carried out by right-wing groups. In 2018, according to the Anti-Defamation League, all extremist killings in the United States were carried out by right-wing extremists, claiming at least 50 lives. Let me repeat that. All extremist killings in the United States in 2018 were carried out by right-wing extremists. To put this in perspective, this is the fourth largest number of murders in a year carried out by domestic terrorists in the United States since 1970. This included the Parkland School shooting, the Yoga Studio shooting in Tallahassee, Florida, the Pittsburgh Synagogue shooting, and a number of others. Not included in the statistics are other hate crimes that happened the same year, such as the murders of two black patrons at a Kroger in Louisville, carried out by a white perpetrator with a racist motive, or near-miss incidents, such as the Trump supporter who sent bombs to the Obamas, several other Democratic politicians, and CNN, bombs that luckily didn't detonate. And this year hasn't been any better for right-wing domestic terror, with the recent deadly mass shootings in places like El Paso, Texas, and Gilroy, California. More generally, the United States has been gripped by the scourge of rampant gun violence. Besides these right-wing attacks, there have been several other incidents of mass shootings where it's difficult or perhaps impossible to know the motive, such as the Dayton, Ohio, and Odessa, Texas shootings, and that's on top of the everyday incidents of gun violence that occur all over the country, it's messed up that I even have to call them everyday incidents, like they're routine, but this is where we are. That said, overall, homicides have decreased over the past three decades, but mass shootings have increased. And this is why it's disingenuous to deflect these mass shooting incidents that seem to be happening more and more often these days by saying, what about Chicago or Detroit or insert city with lots of poor black people here? While urban gun violence is also a big deal and should be addressed, homicide rates are falling. But it's these shootings that are making the news way too often of someone, usually an angry young white male, 
though not always, opening fire in a random public place and killing a lot of innocent people that are in fact rising. That's a problem. And it's a problem that has a number of causes. Here may be one. Stochastic terrorism is the public demonization of a person or group resulting in the incitement of a violent act, which is statistically probable, but whose specifics cannot be predicted. This according to dictionary.com. The term stochastic means random. It's from the Greek word stochastikos, which means proceeding by guesswork and skillful at aiming. And stochastic terrorism refers to these random acts of terror incited by leadership that uses words of bigotry against a group of people, which is what a demagogue essentially does. From the same article on dictionary.com, here's the idea behind stochastic terrorism. Number one, a leader or organization uses rhetoric in the mass media against a group of people. Two, this rhetoric, while hostile or hateful, doesn't explicitly tell someone to carry out an act of violence against that group, but a person feeling threatened is motivated to do so as a result. Three, that individual act of political violence can't be predicted as such, but that violence will happen is much more probable thanks to the rhetoric. And number four, this rhetoric is thus called stochastic terrorism, because of the way it incites random violence. The beauty, for lack of a better term, of stochastic terrorism is the plausible deniability factor. The terror that is inspired by the demagogue is committed seemingly at random, by happenstance, often by extremist lone wolves, individual extremists, rather than by organized groups with the demagogue at the head. They can easily evade any culpability because they aren't out here directly telling followers to commit specific acts of violence. They aren't in the trenches masterminding specific attacks. But they create the impetus and the conditions that incite and enable individuals to commit terrorist acts. Not only has Trump made comments that seem ambivalent at best towards white supremacy, he has also actively worked to hobble any meaningful government response towards ideologies that lead to domestic terror. At the tail end of the Obama administration, as domestic terror was rising, the Department of Homeland Security initiated grant programs aimed at countering domestic extremism, including white supremacy. The Trump administration ended both grants as part of its first budget, and not only that, slashed personnel and funding devoted to fighting the radicalization of potential domestic terrorists. So this was all by design. While the term stochastic terrorism has been mentioned quite a bit in the age of Trump, discussion of this by no means began with him. In 2010, a political action committee headed by Sarah Palin, former Alaska governor and 2008 Republican vice presidential candidate, released an ad targeting several congressional districts across the country with depictions of crosshairs. At the time, several of the targeted congressional representatives received death threats, and Palin was criticized for the inappropriateness of the ad 
and the apparent incitement to violence, which she denied. On January 8th, Jarrett Lochner, a 22-year-old man who embraced anti-government beliefs, armed with a Glock 19 semi-automatic pistol, shot up a public constituents' meeting in suburban Tucson that featured then-U.S. House Representative Gabrielle Giffords. He shot Giffords in the head, then shot several others at the outdoor meeting. Six people were killed, while 14 were injured. Giffords miraculously survived the killing, but required extensive rehabilitation and resigned from office due to her injuries. Lochner eventually pled guilty and was sentenced to several mandatory life sentences. Sarah Palin was even more strongly criticized for the 2010 Crosshairs ad as Giffords District was one of the targeted districts. In deflecting criticism, Palin accused her detractors of blood libel against her. Blood libel is an old anti-Semitic canard that accuses Jewish people of the ritual sacrifice of Christians. While Lochner had begun embracing right-wing and anti-government views in a personality shift a few years before the murders, there is no evidence that Lochner was inspired by the Palin PAC ad or by Palin's rhetoric. He also had a recent history of untreated mental illness and was forced to be medicated for schizophrenia once in police custody. Yet, during this time period, there was discussion of this series of events as a possible example of stochastic terrorism, as Palin was accused of inspiring people to threaten and commit acts of violence. The term itself seems to have originated from a community blog on the Daily Coast website in response to the Tucson attack. The original piece defines stochastic terrorism as, quote, the use of mass communications to stir up random lone wolves to carry out violent or terrorist acts that are statistically predictable but individually unpredictable." End quote. Though the piece was written in terms of the attack perpetrated by Jarrett Lochner, the author provided several examples that stretched back several years previously, including the murder of Dr. George Tiller, an abortion provider, in 2009 at the hands of an anti-abortion extremist. Tiller had been the target of relentless attacks by right-wing personality Bill O'Reilly, referring to Dr. Tiller as a baby killer, comparing him to Mao, Stalin, and Hitler, and even going as far as to say, quote, and if I could get my hands on Tiller, well, you know, can't be vigilantes, can't do that, it's just a figure of speech, but despicable? Oh my god, oh, it doesn't get worse, does it get worse? No. End quote. This is simply speculation, but I believe Donald Trump knows what he's doing. Whether it's wishful thinking on his part, or if he fully expects his followers to execute acts of violence either on his behalf or due to sharing the same extremist ideology, it's hard to know at this point, but we'll probably know soon. The difference between Donald Trump and terror organizations, whether it's one like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, or ones from the past, like the Irish Republican Army, is that terror organizations assume responsibility for the terror they inflict. Hate is the fuel that Donald Trump ran on, and it has been consumed by his supporters, the most loyal of whom are white evangelical Christians. John 13.35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. 
Christians will be known by our love of one another. Yet for too many white evangelical Christians, their love is for something completely different. As I do in a lot of podcast episodes, this episode pertains to Donald Trump, someone who went against an inevitable candidate in Hillary Clinton back in 2016 and emerged victorious through the power of the Electoral College and perhaps other factors. Many of us have spent the past three years Monday morning quarterbacking that event. Now, when it comes to the Academy Awards, we have the best Monday morning quarterbacks in Wendy and Shay on the awesome podcast, The Losers. They discuss Oscar nods from years past and look at why the winner won and the strong, maybe stronger contender lost. Their most recent episode is about the 2011 Best Foreign Film Oscar, where In a Better World from Denmark won over the film Beautiful from Mexico. In this contest, where many of the directors went on to have illustrious careers, Shay and Wendy put their heads together to try to understand how the Academy came to their decision. Do they even watch these movies? Listen to the latest from The Losers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher, or go to theloserspod.podbean.com, and for all the great podcasts of Flying Machine, go to flyingmachine.com shows. Christian nationalism is essentially the belief that Christianity and American government should be intertwined. Think of it as the opposite of the Jeffersonian separation of church and state. In general, Christian nationalists believe in the myth of the United States being established as a Christian nation, and as such should be run according to Christian principles. Now, the thing is, American evangelicalism and Christian nationalism are extremely intertwined. If you looked at a Venn diagram, they would probably be a circle. So, what are considered Christian principles are curiously close to the principles espoused by evangelical Christianity. And a key part of Christian nationalism is the belief that the U.S. Constitution is a God-inspired document, and the Second Amendment right to bear arms is a God-given right. Let's talk a little more about those Christian principles. For many white evangelicals, there exists a cognitive dissonance between a primarily communal outlook in a Bible they see as the inerrant word of God, and the belief in American hyper-individualism. And generally, white evangelicals are likely to side with and lean into hyper-individualism, a particular focus on individual autonomy and self-sufficiency, which manifests itself in belief in less government involvement in the lives of individuals and families, and a focus on individual credit or blame for situations people find themselves in, discounting the contextual and societal factors leading individuals to make certain choices and end up with particular outcomes. In other words, while they speak of an all-powerful God, having a good life is due to your own efforts and goodness, while having a life full of struggle is your own fault. Their concept of injustice is extremely limited at best and are viewed as isolated incidents, not systematic especially when they are perpetrated against people they consider outsiders. Any consideration for historical or structural inequalities, you know, actual freaking context, is considered excuse-making. 
Yet, when it comes to religious faith and culture, which is often tied to race, evangelicals often see themselves as a collective. They often view themselves as a persecuted minority in the mold of the early Christians of the New Testament Book of Acts, even though Christianity is the majority religion in the United States. Now, of course, if you view fellow Christians who are of other Christian traditions or are different politically and socially as heretics or backslidden or not real Bible-believing Christians, then you are gatekeeping yourself into minority status. And as the United States is poised to be majority non-white by 2045, the majority of white evangelicals, according to a PRRI survey, see this change as a negative, unlike all other surveyed religious groups. It just feeds into their fears of sharing their country with people who aren't like them. Living in a world where their desires and comfort are no longer the paramount consideration. To them, persecution doesn't mean the shutting down of churches or being thrown in jail or getting beaten, assaulted, or executed for praying or professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. No. For many American white evangelicals, persecution means the rejection by outsiders of a gospel of misogyny, abuse, white supremacy, and greed. Persecution means not being able to force other people to live based on that gospel. Persecution means not being able to discriminate against other people because they don't live in the way you approve of. Persecution means your religion is no longer privileged, but on the same level as other belief systems or none at all in a pluralistic democratic society. And if you get persecuted as an American evangelical, do you take the advice of the Apostle Paul who said to count persecution as joy? Nope. Instead, let's take over America by force. And that's where we get into white evangelicals and gun culture. When I talk about this, I don't mean that this is the case for all who are gun owners or even all who are involved in gun culture. As I've spoken about in previous episodes, I myself am very much pro-Second Amendment and I do believe there are legitimate, pragmatic reasons to own guns and even to embrace the Second Amendment. What this is about is why many white evangelicals in particular embrace gun culture. In a world where they feel persecuted and they see their beliefs as under siege, they have to be armed. As individualists saddled with toxic masculinity, they must have all the weapons needed to protect their families, their defenseless wives and children, against the boogeyman of the world urban black gang members and welfare queens from Chicago and Baltimore, their picket fence suburbs, Central American drug dealers hopping over the border making a beeline for their bedrooms, and all of the other racial, ethnic, religious, gender, or sexual others who are somehow a threat to themselves or their precious children. But the weapons also serve another purpose. As the persecuted people of God, at some point in time, it will be up to them to defend the faith defend it against these same boogeymen who will be the majority after 2045. They must fight against the powers and principalities of darkness for the soul of America. An America they believe with all their heart has always belonged to them. They may be called to die for the faith, but they're not going down without a fight. One of the reasons why evangelical leaders and in turn evangelical believers 
embrace Donald Trump is because in their view, he is a defender of the Christian faith. Evangelical leader and charlatan Franklin Graham has said of Trump, quote, I never said he was the best example of the Christian faith. He defends the faith, and I appreciate that very much, end quote. Other prominent evangelicals compare Trump to King Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus was mentioned in the Old Testament, as well as by first century Jewish historian Josephus, as a king who was not himself an Israelite, but allowed the ancient Hebrews, who were exiled to Babylon at the time, to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In an interview with the Christian Broadcasting Network, author and commentator Mike Evans said that Cyrus, quote, was used as an instrument of God for deliverance in the Bible, and God has used this imperfect vessel, this flawed human being like you or I, this imperfect vessel, and he's using him in an incredible, amazing way to fulfill his plans and purposes, end quote. This is also echoed by other evangelicals, such as Christian businessman and thought leader Lance Wallnow, the belief being that while Trump isn't a model Christian, he defends the faith in the United States. The Cyrus comparison is also propagated by Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who sees Trump as Cyrus because he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of the modern state of Israel. But what does defending the faith look like? Let's see now. Let's look at the policies the Trump administration has advocated. Trying to destroy the Affordable Care Act to replace it with nothing? Hmm. There's the wall. Maybe. Separating families on the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah. Placing children in tent cities. Oh yeah, when he barred Syrian refugees, including Syrian Christians, from entering the country. Yeah. Refusing to provide adequate aid to the U.S. Commonwealth of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and throwing paper towels in their faces. Ah! Must have been when he refused to unequivocally condemn white supremacy after Charlottesville and El Paso. Both sides. Jeez. Changing the citizenship regulations to screw over the children of the men and women who serve our country overseas. Ah! Sending back Bahamians who are attempting to enter the U.S. after one of the worst natural disasters to ever hit their country in violation of established entry laws. Ugh. Supporting religious freedom. There we go. And what does religious freedom mean to evangelicals? In a nutshell, Religious freedom for evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals, since church experiences in the U.S. are still highly segregated, and many white evangelicals are suspicious of the theology of black Christians, even those who agree with them on many issues. Religious freedom means that their highly nationalistic, white supremacist, xenophobic, misogynistic, hegemonic, Republican Jesus version of Christianity should be the law of the land. Despite what many evangelicals say, it's not really anti-government. You need plenty of government to enforce laws against abortion, to continue the drug war, and to protect law-abiding white Americans from criminal black and Latino Americans, as well as non-white immigrants. You see, government isn't supposed to restrain white evangelical Christians. It's there to restrain those they see as the enemy. It's a white evangelical-centric authoritarianism of the highest order. 
Gun control has often been characterized as an authoritarian impulse because of the element of government being the sole arbiter of the use of force. But for Trump, embracing the Second Amendment works, even within an authoritarian framework, because evangelicals are more likely than the general population to own guns. And many of the groups targeted by Trump, such as liberals and people of color, are statistically less likely to be armed. In addition, gun control laws have historically been aimed primarily at Black Americans and have also targeted other racial and ethnic minorities as well as people in poverty. This is a huge reason why major cities typically have stronger gun control laws. The opposition many conservatives have to gun control has not come as a result of gun control measures, including gun buyback programs, mandatory gun registration, or gun-free buildings enforced by metal detectors that have been commonplace in big cities for decades. It's the idea of having to live under the same restrictions themselves. Some of them even use the argument that it's gun control itself that leads to gun violence in urban areas, which is a specious argument at best. The other reason why embracing the Second Amendment works for Trump is because he can weaponize his base. Trump has been dropping a number of hints that if he gets a second presidential term in 2020, he will seek a third term in 2024, in violation of the 22nd Amendment. Fox News calls it joking and trolling. But if he tried, who will stop him? No, really, who will stop him? The mechanisms that should be in place to stop this from happening are broken, and his base is devoted to him in cult-like fashion, and they are heavily armed. Conclusive numbers are impossible to substantiate, but by some estimates, there may be more guns in the United States than there are people. Considering that members of his fanatical base are more likely to be gun owners and the most loyal of his stands, white evangelicals are also more likely to be gun owners. Many of these people may have more than one gun. And having exposure to gun culture, this is anecdotal, so take it with a grain of salt, but many people I know who are strong Second Amendment advocates have a fair number of guns, more guns than household members. And due to the lack of resources that could keep people from being radicalized to kill, violence in America will unfortunately get a whole lot worse. There are no more lone wolves, simply weaponized tools to serve the demagogue in the Oval Office. Thank you so much for listening to Potstar Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to Podcast slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, you can get brand new episodes once they come out, so you won't miss them. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And I'm always tweeting, so follow me on Twitter at PotsterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine!